Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On December 6, Aung San Suu Kyi was handed down a prison sentence by a court loyal to Myanmar's military junta. Until February this year, Suu Kyi was the de facto civilian leader of Myanmar. Her party, the National League for Democracy, had just won re-election in a landslide victory, the results of which were rejected by the military, which mounted a coup. The military junta were not swayed by massive protests throughout the country and began violently suppressing dissent. Now, violence seems to be escalating, prompting the UN's top human rights official to warn that Myanmar may be sliding into a civil war. My guest today, Matthew Smith, is the co-founder and CEO of Fortify Rights, a human rights organization long active in Myanmar. We kick off discussing the circumstances of Aung San Suu Kyi's criminal conviction before having a broader conversation about the escalating crisis in Myanmar. Our conversation was recorded live on Twitter using the new Twitter Spaces platform. Twitter is partnering with the podcast to produce episodes recorded as Twitter Spaces. If you'd like to participate in one of these live recordings, the best thing to do is follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And now here is my conversation with Matthew Smith of Fortify Rights. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. This conviction, uh, in many ways, uh, is not surprising. I was rather expected, but it's obviously no less concerning, um, along with, the, of course, several thousand other people that remain in prison, along uh, with the detention of Don Sun Tzu Chi. Uh, it, does, it does signal the military hunter digging its heels in, uh, entrenching itself, and uh, further escalating the, the current crisis, unfortunately. Could we maybe like step back and briefly explain to listeners like how we got to this point and the circumstances of the February coup? The proximate situation or the the more recent uh, events that led to the coup on February 1st uh, relates in some ways directly to the 2020 elections in November, uh, November 2020, uh, which Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, won Overwhelmingly, the military's uh, response largely consisted of allegations of voter fraud, uh, essentially what the military generals, many of whom are international criminals, uh, in our view, uh, many of them um, 
got on this bandwagon of essentially arguing that uh, the National League for Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi stole the election, certainly language that American listeners um, will find familiar. Um, And unfortunately, that culminated on February 1st when the new government was meant to to form uh, in the early morning hours, the military essentially began to carry out this, this military coup d'etat, uh, initially starting by arresting Aung San Suu Kyi and President Nguyen Minh and, and, and several others. And then uh, that effort has sadly only grown since then. So initially, the there, first of all, there were huge protests uh, when this coup was carried out, overwhelmingly peaceful protests. And there and what was interesting to me, striking to me, have you know, I, I don't follow Myanmar issues particularly closely. But it seemed to be that the protests were widespread, urban, rural. Various sectors and segments of society came out to protest this coup, uh, and it was overwhelmingly peaceful. What was the sort of initial junta military response to these protests? Well, one of the first things that the military did was. Uh, to block Facebook. They, they recognized very early on that the people of Myanmar were organizing themselves online in resistance to the coup. Uh, and very soon after the coup, uh, actually health, health workers throughout Myanmar were the first uh, to walk out of their positions in government-run hospitals as a form of protest that that grew into what the people of Myanmar refer to as the civil disobedience movement, which now involves uh, a large number, various sectors, huge numbers of people participating in that. Um, And uh, as you mentioned, protests were massive. They were nationwide. And um, the military uh, shortly thereafter, they tolerated the the protests for a, a period of time but then um, uh, essentially went on a killing spree. And so we've, uh, our team was documenting uh, widespread and systematic murders taking place in the streets of Myanmar. Uh, and, and this was happening in, this, in the city's larger uh, urban centers, as well as in uh, you know, more remote or rural uh, towns and villages. Uh, soldiers were uh, deploying, the military and police were deploying snipers, uh, they were uh, firing indiscriminately into groups of protesters, men, women, and children killed. So all told, they killed uh, more than 1,200 people since the, since the coup has unfolded. Um, and there are other crimes that have been happening as well. We're documenting widespread imprisonment. Uh, essentially, the military and police are rounding up anybody who is uh, perceived to be critical of the military coup. Um, which of course is the vast majority of the country uh, is, 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 is obviously opposed to what is happening right now with the military. They're opposed to the coup, uh, but uh, uh, it's, it's become an incredibly dangerous place for all people in Myanmar. Could you maybe relate or tell the story of say an individual who has been detained unlawfully that you've documented as part of your uh, research, as part of your organization's human rights research? Sure. I mean, we, we have documented imprisonment uh, uh, as a crime of, against humanity uh, happening, as mentioned, in, in urban areas, and rural areas. Um, a lot of these cases are, are very similar uh, in that you'll have uh, young people, for example, took to the streets in huge numbers. Thousands of young people were 
arrested, uh, in many cases facing torture. The military has been carrying out uh, various modes of torture against people for many, many years. That certainly is not new to, to Myanmar. Um, and uh, there's no rule of law, of course, so people are essentially uh, um, being sentenced uh uh, without uh, without any sort of uh, there's there's no fair trial the judiciary is completely compromised by the military controlled by the military and has been all for a very long time uh, and so uh, w- what a lot of these people find themselves in is a situation in which they're you know effectively either disappeared or or uh, imprisoned in one of the country's more than 50 prisons throughout as the military government meted out violence against dissidents and against uh, those who are supporting the civil disobedience movement, how has the movement itself evolved uh, in the months and in response to uh, this violence by the junta? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, the, the, the movement has evolved in a number of ways. I think it's fair to say that uh, uh, millions upon millions of people have, in one way or another, actively resisted this coup and actively protested this coup, whether that is taking to the streets or in the evenings, uh, banging pots and pans as a, as a tactic of protest against the military, against the coup. Um, uh, a lot of people in Myanmar had um, expected, reasonably so, that that there would be a lot more action from the international community when the military uh, went on its killing spree and began um, arresting, detaining, torturing, killing men, women, and children in large numbers. And unfortunately, uh, the international community has failed the people of Myanmar. Once again, and so in response to that failure, a number of of people throughout the country have taken up arms and joined what what are essentially called uh, the People's Defense Forces or PDF. Uh, so there are PDF uh, units throughout the country in various locations that are now actively engaged in armed conflict, and you have situations of you know young people who uh, who uh, had uh, uh, bright few. Pictures in front of them had, had had decent jobs working in Myanmar's urban areas, and now they find themselves learning how to essentially become a soldier. So this is this is a, a, a tragic story unfolding for for the people of Myanmar uh, right now. And uh, there certainly is um, it would be crucial right now for for more international action, which I, I'm, I'm happy to talk a little bit more about that as well, Mark. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I do want to get into sort of international responses. Um, but what you just said sort of is sort of why I wanted to speak with you today. This this idea that Myanmar may be sliding into a new iteration of an armed conflict. I noticed with interest uh, UN saying, I think it was uh, Michelle Bachelet, the high commissioner for human rights, warning of the possibility of an outright civil war. Uh, happening in Myanmar as a result of the military cracking down on this protest movement and the protesters, many of whom are are now taking up arms. Like how widespread is this armed opposition to the military junta right now, as opposed to other elements of the protest movement that are still committed to nonviolence? 
Well, I, I think it's important for for uh, for people to understand that Myanmar is a country that's been at war for a very long time, for decades. In fact, uh, uh, the the armed conflict in Karen State on Myanmar's eastern side, eastern border, is regarded as one of the world's longest ongoing civil wars. They've been enduring. The people of Karen State have been enduring uh, armed conflict in one way or another since uh, 1949, at least, or the 1950s, uh, and so. Uh, uh, you know, whether it's Kachin State, Shan State, Mon State, what have you, there are a number of locations throughout Myanmar where armed conflict has been uh, has been ongoing for a very long time. And part of that armed conflict has involved mass atrocity crimes by the Myanmar military. So in many ways, the, the atrocities that we're seeing now all throughout the country uh, have been endured by Myanmar's ethnic nationalities for many, many years. We're talking about villages being burned to the ground, uh, widespread and systematic rape of women and girls used as a weapon of war. We're talking about widespread torture, imprisonment, um, genocide, of course, in, in the in the context of the ethnic Rohingya population in Rakhine State. So this is a, this is a, certainly not a place that um, uh, that has not been experiencing these types of crimes before. I think what's different right now is the fact that the Myanmar military is doing what it has done to ethnic nationalities for many years uh, to all of Myanmar's people now. So the, the ethnic uh, Burman majority is, is uh, in some areas experiencing these types of atrocities. Unfortunately, for, for um, uh, uh, since the coup, they've been experiencing these same atrocities that have been ongoing for some time. So um, this is this is the larger context, I think, of civil war. Some of the some of the concerns about uh, Myanmar, quote unquote, sliding into civil war, I think, is uh, is is more about the fact that um, this is an armed conflict that could and and is getting much much bigger. Um, but uh, but certainly, uh, it is it, it is not new. Myanmar is not new to civil war. And I should say that we're speaking just I think a few hours after word. Uh, kind of first came through through social media and has been reported by you know reputable news outlets of an atrocity that occurred uh, in a village in which the military um, apparently you know burnt down the village and uh, executed several people and and burnt their bodies and there's some disturbing images uh, that are are kind of coming through on on social media on that. That's right. Uh, th- this was a this was an incident in Sagain region, um, uh, which again is one of these places that uh, you know, for the most part, has has not experienced the type of armed conflict over the years that some of the other ethnic states have, and uh, and this is this particular crime uh, believed to have uh, the military is believed to have burned the bodies of at least eleven people, including reportedly a child. Uh, this is sadly consistent with Myanmar military behavior uh, in situations like this. Uh, They have, you know, back in 2016, 2017, we were documenting how the military had had raised to the ground more than 300 villages just in northern Rakhine state, ethnic Rohingya villages. And as part of that onslaught, as part of that genocidal attack, uh, uh, an enormous number of men, women, and children were burned in similar fashion as occurred in Sagai region recently. Uh, and, and so this is, this is part of the Myanmar military's uh, dreadful and, and barbaric approach 
uh, to this political situation unfolding. Uh, so with Aung San Suu Kyi sidelined, deposed in a coup, placed under arrest, and, and now convicted, uh, you've seen the sort of rise to prominence of this new national unity government, which you know, it seems to be almost like this kind of shadow government uh, that is the umbrella group of opposition forces uh, that are both you know, in political and also apparently in armed uh, opposition to the military junta. Can you just sort of describe what is this group? How did it arise? And sort of what legitimacy does it have right now? Yeah, the, the national unity government uh, arose out of uh, something called the um, uh, CRPH, Committee Representing the Pidang Sulata. And, and it's essentially re- uh, elected officials uh, elected parliamentarians and, and others formed this group uh, soon after the coup and then eventually established the national unity government uh, some months ago. Uh, and, you know, it is often referred to as a parallel government. And, our, and, and, and from our perspective, um, it's not the most accurate way to refer to the national unity government. We don't see it as a parallel government because that would imply that the Myanmar junta is the other government that it is parallel to. And the junta, of course, is not a government. This is a criminal gang, as UN Special Rapporteur Tom Andrews referred to them just the other day. Uh, It's a a terrorist uh, criminal enterprise that is exerting uh, brutal power over 54 million people throughout the country. Um, And so, um, uh, but but yes, the National Unity Government uh, does comprise elected officials and some others who have since been appointed. It is the closest thing Myanmar has uh, to a democratically elected government under this current situation. Uh, there are a number of um, uh, a number of national unity government cabinet level uh, people are still in the country uh, conducting the business of government, the business of this revolution uh, from positions of hiding uh, in many cases. Uh, and they're doing, this is the fight of their life in, in, in many cases. And the military is going to great lengths to try to quash the national unity government, um, which is of course an indicator in our view of, of ultimately of the Myanmar military's weakness. Uh, the, only, the, only, the only thing that the military has is weapons. Um, they don't have the hearts and minds of the people. And so the only way they can maintain power is by doing what they're doing, which is, uh, of course, uh, in, 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 in violation of um, any number of international laws uh, and effectively constitutes mass atrocity crimes. So with, with Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, effectively, you know, imprisoned, potentially, for, you know, for as long as this junta is in control, which could be, you know, the rest of her life, she's 76 years old, she's facing... Um, a, a short prison sentence for these particular spurious crimes, but you know they could pile on other criminal convictions on top of her that could keep her in prison for forever potentially. Um, what can or, or what is first of all the international community doing, if anything, to support this opposition national unity government right now? And what more can the international community be doing to support the opposition in Myanmar? Well, you know, there, there are a number of governments. The National Unity government is engaging with, with governments around the world. And we do know that a number of governments um, are not, uh, are, are, are 
electing to not engage the Myanmar junta, which is the correct course of action. Uh, no government should lend even a shred of political legitimacy to the military junta. Um, and I should just say that the United Nations has, has rejected the application for credentials uh, of the junta's um, the junta's representatives at the UN just recently. This happened just this week. That's right. They deferred uh, the credentials committee. De- de- thankfully, deferred the the decision, and so uh, national unity government uh, ambassador John Motun will retain his his credentials at the UN, which is uh, can't be underestimated the, the importance of that. Um, but but certainly uh, the um, uh, governments have been engaging with the national unity government. Um, and we are encouraging governments to get behind the national unity government's efforts to achieve justice and accountability. Uh, this is one particular area, a particular part of uh, this situation uh, that we feel is, is very important, largely because it is the, the widespread impunity that the Myanmar military has enjoyed for many years, for decades, in fact, uh, that we believe has ultimately led to this situation so it is critically important right now that governments band together to uh, isolate the junta. We have seen sanctions. We've seen some targeted sanctions imposed by a number of governments, including the U.S. government, the U.K., and others. Um, there is still a lot to do. There's a lot more that governments around the world can do. Um, right now, the U.N. Security Council, for example, has... Um, Perhaps it's unsurprising the UN Security Council has failed to discharge its mandate to uh, protect uh, international peace and security and has uh, has failed to uh, impose any sort of take, take any action whatsoever. We've seen some statements, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, one thing that the Security Council could do would be to impose a global arms embargo against the Myanmar military. And part of the strategy here is, is really to deny the Myanmar military access to the things that it craves, which and the things that it craves are, are weapons, uh, finances, and access to the international financial institutions uh, or uh, international financial system, rather, uh, and political legitimacy. And so if there is one thing that governments around the world can and should be doing, it would be denying the Myanmar military those three things. So this runs into... The challenge at the Security Council, which is that the Chinese government, uh, while not necessarily like a close ally of the junta, nonetheless is not seeking to um, impose any sanctions or take any meaningful action. So it's it's really the the holdup at the Security Council is the threat of the Chinese veto, and that has so far prevented the Security Council from taking any meaningful action along the lines of what you just described. So, I mean, given that geopolitical reality, like what are other options or alternatives available to um, the international community to apply pressure or to threaten the military junta in one way or other with, with some sort of like justice and accountability for the crimes they're committing? Well, the the uh, from from our perspective, there are some indicators that uh, Beijing is 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 not happy with uh, the Tatmadaw. They're not. They're they're. they're and I say that the Tatmadaw, for those who don't know, is is the, the the formal name of the the military of Myanmar. Yes, of course. Thank you for yeah. that. Yeah, but, but there there are some indicators that uh, Beijing is, is is you know reportedly unhappy with the with the military's. Uh, 
uh, with the situation that the military has has carried out, uh, it's worth noting that um, you know what what we believe they're unhappy about is is essentially what what you know would be referred to or conceptualized as instability. So um, that that in some ways uh, is the bar for uh, the government of China. Uh, you know we've seen. China turn a blind eye to genocide in Myanmar, war crimes, crimes against humanity for quite some time. Um, those types of crimes are are typically not what um, the government has has demonstrated any concern about. Uh, so there is this shameful dynamic taking place where you have China and Russia effectively propping up uh, this regime, uh, turning a blind eye to mass atrocity crimes, preventing the Security Council from taking meaningful action. That said, uh, a resolution that would mandate a global arms embargo against the Myanmar military has not been put forward. And so we are encouraging uh, the UK government uh, as a Security Council member that, quote unquote, holds the pen on Myanmar meaning that the UK government uh, takes responsibility to advance any discussions or potential action with regard to Myanmar at the Security Council, uh, we are encouraging the government to put forward a resolution uh, to push this issue forward. It's long, long overdue. Um, and beyond that, there, there is a lot uh, that other governments can be doing. The, the US government, for example, uh, could initiate targeted sanctions that would effectively prevent the Myanmar military from stealing the natural gas revenues. Uh, these, are, these are the people's natural resources. And right now, the military junta uh, is receiving uh, enormous payments from uh, multinational oil and gas companies, including one project that Chevron, U.S. company, is involved in. Uh, and so governments can interdict that revenue, prevent those payments from getting to the junta, hold that money in escrow, until uh, a democratic government is uh, is established in Myanmar, in which in which case we would expect the relevant authorities to free those funds up. Yeah, I mean, you sort of quoted uh, Tom Andrews, the UN Special Rapporteur on Myanmar, as describing the junta as like a criminal gang, and it seems that they fund their criminal enterprise in part through export of of natural gas. And you're saying that like individual or, or sec, uh, sectorial sanctions imposed by the U.S. Treasury Department uh, could prevent um, the export of that gas and, and sort of hold that money in escrow. That's right. And, you know, there would be there would my understanding is there are several uh, uh, various methods that uh, could be employed to achieve that end uh, through sanctions, through coordinating with other governments. And it's worth mentioning as well that, you know, the the oil and gas industry in Myanmar um, has been complicit in uh, human rights violations like forced labor, torture, killings. For example, the Yadana natural gas pipeline, which is uh, of Total, a, a French company, Chevron, which was formerly Unical, and uh, a state-owned Thai firm. Uh, the construction of this natural gas pipeline occurred in the 1990s, early 1990s precisely at a time when the Myanmar military was broke. And so back then, uh, it was natural gas revenues that propped up the military junta and kept the country on a, a very destructive course that it is still on. And so once again, we're seeing a situation in which uh, uh, a military junta in Myanmar is relying on those same 
gas sales to prop itself up. Uh, so it's a longstanding problem, and it's, it is something that uh, that deserves urgent attention. Uh, Matthew, I have one last question for you. Uh, before I ask you that question, I do want to encourage anyone who's listening right now to raise their hand, request to speak. If, if they have a, a question, we can maybe get through a few questions if, if you'd like. Um, my last question to you, though, going forward, what will you be looking towards in the next you know, coming days or weeks or months that will suggest to you uh, how this crisis is unfolding? Are there any sort of key inflection points in the coming you know, days or, or weeks or months that you are looking towards? Well, we, we at Fortify Rights, we have been collecting uh, and documenting the Myanmar military's crimes. We are investigating the specific individuals that we believe are responsible for uh, this coup crackdown. Um, and we are preparing to uh, release more information about uh, things like the military's command responsibility, essentially information that we believe would be important for prosecutors uh, that are working to hold the Myanmar, uh, uh, hold perpetrators of the Myanmar military accountable. Um, And so uh, at Fortify Rights, at least, and with some of our colleagues and partners, um, that will be uh, an important uh, moment, we hope, that will help inform uh, some of these accountability mechanisms that are in motion slowly, but are in motion uh, globally, uh, but beyond that, there there are indicators that the situation, particularly in some of Myanmar's ethnic areas, could worsen considerably. Uh, the military has been moving troops to various places. We're seeing increased armed conflict, increased mass atrocity crimes in places like Chin State, Sagaing region, and elsewhere. Uh, and there is a concern that's taking place. Another thing to mention is the denial of humanitarian aid. Um, you know, this is an area where in some of the ethnic states in particular, uh, the Myanmar military is forcibly displacing civilians, but then preventing aid workers from accessing those civilians, which is, of course, a war crime. And so we are encouraging governments to engage in, uh, in, in cross-border aid. Um, the aid is not going to be able to reach uh, those who need it most from the center of Myanmar because of the military junta's repression. Um, and so the answer there is, of course, to, uh, to, to bring aid across Myanmar's borders most. Um, not necessarily inflection points, but these are some of the ongoing, um, uh, imposs- in some cases, impossibly difficult scenarios that the people of Myanmar are finding themselves in. So I would just, I would encourage, you know, I would encourage listeners to, um, you know, educate themselves on these issues. And, uh, and if they do feel so compelled, the people of Myanmar can certainly use their support. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Matthew Smith for speaking with me in this unique platform, Twitter Spaces. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg if you'd like to be alerted when I'm scheduling one of these. And I often leave room for audience participation at the end of each interview. Otherwise, no need. You can just keep on listening as you keep listening, and I'll keep serving you up two episodes a week every week. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.